Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. This morning. There we go. Let's get fired up. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name's Carson. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here, and I am so excited to be with you this morning on this Thanksgiving week. Everybody's doing okay? Yeah. That good. All right. Very cool. Um, yeah, it's Baptism Sunday, as was mentioned. Uh, we had somebody just jump in and be like, I'm getting baptized today uh, in the last service, and we've got somebody getting baptized this morning in the second service, so we'll do that after service. We have been in a series talking about legacy, as Pastor Jeremy just mentioned, um, and what it means to leave a legacy. The last two weeks we've talked about um, what it looks like to leave a legacy, kind of like the 10,000-foot view, and then kind of just how to live that out last week. And so I'm kind of talking about what it means to leave a legacy. I gave, I gave Ben a title, and he told me it was too long. He said that was too long of a title. So I was like, all right, so we changed it. I don't remember what we changed it to, though. So my, t- <laughs> my title is You Won't Get Where You're Heading Without Recognizing Where You Are. But um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Mal and I, that's my wife, if you haven't met, she's the kid's pastor, crushing it upstairs right now. Um, but we were in the booth, um, and we were talking with Pastor Connor about December 4th. Quick shout out, saw four high school students on stage this morning, incredible, leading it. Hey, they can hear us. They're back there. Hey, we're hyping up. They get easily embarrassed, so we're going to hype them up. Um, but... We're doing that again in a couple weeks. We're doing a a generational takeover on December 4th. Love for you guys to be here. But um, we're we're having a meeting. We're planning it. We're going through different stuff. Um, And so somehow it came up that Pastor Connor does not know who Ben Rector is. Now listen, some of you guys may not know who Ben Rector is. That's fine. I'll send you a playlist. Like, it's okay. But I put a picture up here just just to be sure. I put a picture with the mustache on there. Handsome dude. I mean, what are you going to do? But he's up there. He's one of my favorite musicians of all time. Um, He's right up there. He's my wife's favorite musician um, to listen to. Probably her and Nicole Nordman, if you guys know who that is. But um, anyway, so it starts coming up. We're in this meeting, but I'm like... I'm like pumping it up. I'm like, we're going to play it through, through the speakers. You need to hear Ben Rector. And he's like, this, his voice is really soothing. Oh, it's relaxing. Let me tell you. Again, I will send you a playlist. Just ask me. All right. So, but we're talking about Ben Rector. I start playing a song. I was like, you got to hear this one. I was like, oh, listen to this one. It's a Shania Twain cover. I'm like, let's go. So <laughs> we're just like listening to a couple songs. All while Malin's doing the work. So work ends for the day. We go get in the car. And she's like, hey, I got to be honest. I'm a little upset with you. Great communication skills, honestly. She's killing it in our marriage. She's the reason we're in love. Come on. And she's, and she's like, I'm just a little frustrated. Um, you know, we were trying to have a meeting, and you were playing Ben Rector songs. And then this one line stuck out with me. She was like, I even got a little irritated with Ben Rector's voice there for a second. I was like, well, I can't have you living in that capacity. That would be terrible. And so um, basically, um, I think sometimes that's how we treat our relationship with God. And before we get into that, I'll give you another example, um, just because I have one. Um, but how many of you guys, this is probably more for the ladies, but how many of you guys clean out your fridge, and it's got like a little door alarm yeah, it's like beeping. It's like, please shut the fridge. Don't use the fridge to cool down your house. You got it. Sarah's with me. All right, sweet. So it's like, it's like constantly, I don't think it's ever, alert. Like, I don't think I've ever accidentally left the fridge open and it's beeping. Like, I think it's always because like, I'm trying to do something and it's like, please shut the door. And so like, it just gets really frustrating. Or like, you know, maybe like a friend of yours is trying to text and like, you're trying to talk to them or maybe you're texting or on your phone and somebody's trying to talk to you. It gets kind of obnoxious. The point being in all of this, that I think if we don't make God our our main focus, our main desire in our life, two things happen. 
He becomes a background noise that even the most loving, soothing voice, like that of Ben Rector, right? Like even the most like, like loving thing can become obnoxious in the background if it's not our main focus. If we're trying to do something else like clean out the fridge and there's beeping going on, it's frustrating, right? If someone's trying to distract us from what we're actually trying to do, it becomes annoying. And so I think sometimes we treat God that way, and if we don't make him the main object of our desire in life, he becomes an irritating background noise. And no matter how loving he is, it happens. And so two things kind of go on. You know, he, he, he kind of becomes like a, a, a tyrant kind of voice in like the back of our lives. It's like, hey, I need you to follow these rules that becomes overbearing. And then you struggle with God because you're like, he just wants me to live righteously. What's up with that guy? And you're just like so upset because it feels like you're a standard you can't live up to. Or you just kind of just turn a different direction and you kind of just like walk away from God. And you're just like, no, I couldn't handle that. I didn't make him the one object, the one desire of my life and what I want to base everything off of. And I think we're all guilty of that at different point in times. I know I am. I think we have an opportunity this morning to set our focus on what God wants to do in our lives. I think that God actively wants to live with each and every one of us every moment of the day, and he didn't just call us to show up to church on Sundays and then be like, awesome, I reset my mind, I looked at Jesus, I sang songs, I was really intentional, and then just kind of just like let our battery deplete like throughout the week. Like I don't think that that's what it is. I don't think it's like, oh, my battery depletes, I reset next Sunday. I think God wants to live with us every single moment of the day and he wants to open up our eyes to what he's doing and we have to be willing to let our eyes be opened. I think that's true. So we have an opportunity to do that this morning in our legacy series. Today we are talking about the story of Elijah and Elisha. You guys familiar Old Testament prophets? That's right. One was training the other. Okay. If you're not familiar, I'll catch you up. Elijah is one of my favorite people in the entire Bible. His story's in 1 Kings, and it kind of ends in 2 Kings. Long story short, that was actually one book. We just separated it for our Bible, so it's just one scroll. But basically, Elijah's life is in the middle of those two books. And he just speaks to me because he was so close with God, but he went through a lot. Sometimes he felt alone, sometimes he felt depressed, sometimes he felt anxious, he felt like God was far off when he wasn't, and I think many of us can attest to feeling that way sometimes. Sometimes you look at the other Old Testament-like people, and you're like, like Moses, like he was so close with God, he saw God's glory, his face was shining to where people were like, you saw God's you need to cut, put a veil on your face, like it's blinding me. And then to the point where Moses, when he was trying to go to the promised land, right, he to oversimplify it for you, hit a rock too many times, and God was like, that's it, you're in trouble, you don't get to go into the promised land. Now, that's an oversimplification, but you have to live a pretty righteous lifestyle to get in trouble for hitting a rock too many times, I think. Um, I, mean, I, I mean, I wouldn't make it, right? So, but, and then you kind of got like David, like David was king, he had some highs and lows, right? At some point, he did, in fact, cheat on his wife and then murder that lady's husband. So, I mean, I'm not trying to live like that. I don't know if any of you guys are guilty of that. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. If you've done that, there is grace for you. But, so, but I'm just saying, like, like you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. But, like, I don't know if I've, like, seen the glory. Is my face shining right now? And so I think we look at, like, we see Moses like an archetype of Christ. And then David and all his faults, a man after God's own heart because of how he loved his enemies, right? But you see... Elijah. And James says this, even in the New Testament, James was the half-brother of Jesus, right? They had different dads. You've read the story. 
But James wrote this about Elijah in the New Testament in, in 5, 17, and 18. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. Now, what does that mean to you and me? That Elijah, a man just like me and you, God heard his prayers. He wasn't different than us. He wasn't not depressed or not anxious or not wondering where God was. But he knew God and God listened to him. And he was a man with a nature just like ours. That we as human beings can communicate with the living God. So in the middle of one of Elijah's tirades, like he like was just with God on the mountain Fire fell down from heaven. I'm encouraging you to read the story. Fire comes down from heaven and like consumes water and people die. It's nuts. First Kings, go read it. But what's interesting is after that glorious moment with God where he encountered him and God showed up, that's when he felt the most depressed. Has anybody ever been there? Has anybody ever feel like they're in the valley immediately? Like it doesn't feel like you're on the mountaintop with God and then you slip down. It feels like our relationship with God's like a cliff. Like you're just on the cliff and then you're like down. Like has anybody ever felt like experienced that? Like has anybody felt distant from God right after a high moment? This is where Elijah finds himself. He finds himself in a difficult moment. Um, and God says, one, you're, you're a little crazy. You're not alone. There's other people. Like, he, you know, he's, he's assuring you. He's more comforting than my own voice. He was like, he's like, it's going to be all right, you know? Um, but um, he also says, I want to give you a companion to travel with. He says, I'm going to make sure that you're not alone on your journey. And he tells him to go and, and, and lay his mantle to anoint someone to go with him. Now, this tells us something a lot about the next generation, but I just have to clarify. Someone came up to me after first service and was like, hey, I don't think people know what a mantle is. And that's fine. I'll tell you, it's not a fireplace or whatever's over it. Um, a mantle's kind of like an overcoat. So like kind of like a blessing of like, hey, you're with me now if you're about it. You know what I'm saying? So, um, but basically, I think it says a lot about the new gener- next generation, but let's read it. We're gonna be in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. We'll throw it on the screen. So Elijah, he departed from there, and he found Elisha. Now, if you're having trouble remembering which one is which, um, a, healthy, a healthy tool is a J comes before S in the alphabet. That's how I do it. All right. He's heard. Come on. He's, he knows the alphabet. So, but J comes before S in the alphabet, right? And if, and if that doesn't help, I will say Elisha before Elijah every time, I hope. All right. So Elijah... He went there. He found Elisha, the son of Shephat, as someone's father's name that, you know, you get it, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. So basically, he was plowing with two oxen in front of him. And then there were like 11 other guys who were like plowing with oxen in front of him. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him or his mantle. There we go. And he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah. And he said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Doesn't that sound like your high schooler? Every time before they leave the house, they're like, let me kiss my mom and dad goodbye. You guys can relate to that. They love that stuff. And he said to them, go back for what have I done to you? Now, that sounds like a confusing situation. I looked at the Hebrew. Very confusing. But basically what he's saying is, what have I done to you? Of course, you can go do that and come back, basically. I was confused, so I'm making sure you guys aren't. You guys probably got it the first time. So, and he returned from following him, and he took the yoke of the oxen, and he sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. The first thing I want to talk to you about this morning is our legacy transforms throughout our journey. So, 
Elijah shows up looking for someone to go with him. God tells him who. He anoints him. And Elisha had so much zeal as to burn his source of income. He's like, I'm going to set this on fire. I'm going to slaughter these animals. I'm going to feed the people. He had no fear. He said, I'm willing to go. And I think a lot of the next generation is looking to go and attach themselves to someone who is willing to be a godly example of that. If you've read any sort of statistics on the church, you would recognize that both Gen Z and millennials, but more heavily even Gen Z, are leaving the church. They're not going anymore. Um, And why is that? I'm not providing a solution. I'm just saying they're looking for someone to attach them to with zeal, and we don't need to miss the opportunity to raise up the next generation. And I think sometimes, you know, the next generation may not have the willingness, zeal of Elijah to give everything they had to seek after God, but Elijah did. And I think if we give them opportunities, that's what they're looking for. So our legacy transforms throughout our journey. Um, I think what's really interesting is uh, psychologists say this. There's studies on it. I read this one time in a book, and I was like, I have to research this because it terrified me. But basically, the idea is if you're 30 to 35, somewhere in that range, if you've thought about, like, buying a convertible or something like that, you know, midlife crisis. That was a joke. It's fine. We'll get back to it later. But, if, but like, if you're in that like, kind of, like, midlife scenario, right, that's when your brain sort of shifts into thinking, okay, this is who I am. If you're a Christian, this is who God made me to be. What am I supposed to do with what God's put in my hand? How am I going to leave a legacy with what I have? And if you're sort of on that younger end of the spectrum, so uh, uh, students and middle, high, college, like growing up into that age, your mindset isn't really what do I need to do with what I have, but who do I need to become to make an impact? Who do I need to be to leave a legacy if you're older than that, maybe you remember, like, you know, and I, I, read that, I read that line and it kind of just scared me for a little bit. I was like, okay, so at some point I'm stuck being who I am. Like, I don't, like, I don't get to change anymore. Um, and, and I don't think it's that. There's definitely transformation throughout the entirety of life. But you hit a certain point where you stop thinking about who you need to become and start thinking about what you need to do. I think that's something we didn't know about the next generation if we're going to make an impact. But Elisha is just full of zeal. He's excited. And the very last line in that scripture, I don't think it was on the screen, but it says, Elisha, oh, there we go. He arose and he assisted them. But another translation said, that's the ESV. I think the the NIV translation says that he became his servant. He became his servant. Elisha didn't show up and be like, oh, you want me to follow you? Like, let me speak on Sunday morning. Like, let me, like, give me a platform. I'm ready to impact the people. What he did was, is he submitted himself under a man that was chasing God and said, whatever you need, I got you. Whatever you need. I'm willing to become your servant. This guy had so much eagerness and zeal to do it. And I, I've heard this phrase plenty of times in my life, but maybe you've heard it said, youth is wasted on the young, right? You know, like, oh, now that I'm older and wiser, I wish I had the energy I did. And I think the component that's missing is I don't think we can really change how much energy you have when you get older, but I think we can impact the next generation with energy to become people who seek after God's heart. And if they're looking for examples, how do we become that? How do we partner with this next generation? Number two is our legacy is defined by what we're willing to give up. 
We kind of spoke on what Elisha was willing to give up. He gave everything he had. But I think this is kind of one of the hardest things to live, right? We live in a consumeristic culture. We live in a, a materialistic culture where we, like, we want things. But I think oftentimes our legacy is defined by what we're giving up, not just physical stuff, but personal desires and thoughts. And what are we willing to lay down to become more like Jesus? Jesus said this in John chapter 12. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world is going to keep it for eternity. He said, if you want to have eternal life, you're willing to lose what you have now, your own desires. You're willing to make Jesus the main forefront desire. Put him at the center and not let him become annoying background noise. If you make Jesus Christ your first and foremost, that's how you have eternal life. Uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians in speaking about what Jesus did, and he said this, talking about Jesus. He said, being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross, which was the most embarrassing thing you could do. I mean, a lot of people don't picture this, and in, in, in TMI maybe, um, but like Jesus was hung up on the cross like in an embarrassing fashion, like naked. Like I know a lot of times we we're like, we're not going to hang up a statue like that. Like he has a little like Tarzan tarp on or whatever's going on. But like Jesus was, it wasn't an embarrassing death death. It wasn't just that he died. It was shameful. And Jesus was willing to do that. Um, and and in, the, in the end, he ro rose from the dead, right? And so we're like, well, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, I think that that's what he's saying to us. Like, if you believe you're going to rise at the end of your life and that Jesus has prepared a place for you, are you willing to make sacrifices now knowing this is not your eternity. And I think sometimes we live our life like this is our only one, but the Bible gives us the exact opposite point of view. It says that if you lose your life, you will gain it. God said it himself. So to leave a legacy, you have to identify two things. You have to recognize where you are, and you have to think about where you're headed. I think sometimes we do a disservice to ourselves um, by not recognizing where we are. I think sometimes we show up at church on Sunday mornings like we talked about a second ago, and we're, we, we were like, man, that was a great sermon. I love that. That was really good. It was a great time of worship, which is all good things. But then we don't really recognize what our relationship with God is like. What is, our, what is your personal relationship with God like? It's easy to think about people in the Bible and be like, well, they're so different than us. They lived in a different time. It's easy to think about the followers of Christ and be like, yeah, they kind of did that. But what is your personal relationship with God like? If he truly wants to spend 24-7 with you, if he truly wants to be with you on Wednesday morning, what is your role in that? Do you accept that? Do you acknowledge that? How do we open up our eyes to see that? And I, I know I'm just posing a question. I'm not giving you an answer, but it's something as a self-reflection to think about. What is your relationship with God actually like? Um, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist, he was baptizing people as he does. It's in his name. That's why they call him John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. Some of his followers show up. They're talking about purification, you know, talking about being purified before the Lord. So his disciples, they come to John and they say to him, John chapter 3, uh, verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, talking about Jesus, 
look, he is baptizing. They're like, that's kind of our thing. You know, your name is John the baptizer. Like, that guy's kind of over there baptizing. And John answered, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness. I'm not a liar. That I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He compares himself to somebody whose friend's getting married. He said, the friend of the bridegroom, that's me, who stands and hears him just rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then this famous line, maybe you've seen it somewhere, um, maybe on a coffee mug, who knows. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase but I must decrease. I mean, as far as spiritually being formed to Jesus Christ, that's kind of like just like a one-liner. Like it's kind of just all wrapped up in that point. But John, who was the forerunner for Christ, right? My grandpa always told the joke, if John the Baptist was a car, what would he be? A forerunner. That's right. So he was the forerunner for Christ, and he had the ability to recognize that even with all the miraculous things that he had done in setting the table, when somebody started taking over his role, he was willing to say, one, all good things come from above, and two, he must increase and I must decrease. John, who even came before and Jesus showed up after, he recognized that in his own life, he had, there was space where Jesus needed to be and he needed to not to be. You know, and, and Jesus was obedient unto death. So that's, why, that's what we're talking about this morning. How can we recognize what God is trying to do? Where are we at and where are we headed? At the end of the story of Elijah and Elisha, I'm just going to kind of catch you up. It's a long story. They're partnered together. And then in Second Kings chapter, I think it's 2. Yeah, no, 13. That was close. So um, in Second Kings chapter 2, we kind of get to the end of the story. But before that, Elijah and Elisha are together. They're traveling together. Um, and Elisha says, hey, my time's over. I'm going to be taken up. I'm going to heaven. Uh, God's, it's, it's an incredible story. If you've never read it before, it is absolutely incredible. Uh, basically, there's a lot of fire. Fire's really cool. Elisha gets taken up in a chariot of fire. But basically, on the way there, Elisha's like, Elijah, why don't you stay here? Oh, I told it backwards. That's what I told you guys I wasn't going to do. Oh, no. Sermon's over. I'm just kidding. Okay, so Elijah, he's going up in the chariot of fire. You guys are getting it. You guys were correcting me in your minds. It's fine. You, you've got it. You're, you're with me. So Elijah and Elisha are on their journey, and Elijah's like, hey, it's my time. And Elisha's like, let me go with you a little farther. And Elijah's like, I don't think you should. I'm going to go now to heaven. And Elisha's like, I'm going to go with you. And then five times this happened. Even people in the town were coming up to Elisha, and they're like, hey, your master's going to heaven. He's like, I know. Don't bother me right now. I'm going with him. And so they get to the end of the journey, and Elisha's like, hey, I'm going up to heaven. What can I do to bless you before your time ends? And he goes, I want a double portion. He basically is like, I want what you did twice as much. Lay your portion on me. And Elijah's like, okay, I'm going to go up to heaven. If you see me go into heaven, God's going to answer this prayer. I'm going to go up and it'll happen. So Basically, over the course of his lifetime, whether it was raising a, a widow's son or parting the sea, that's not just Moses, Elijah parted a sea, right, with his mantle. So again, a mantle is a top coat, we got that. So, um, but Elijah did about 14 miracles. He did about 14 miracles. So Elisha asked for a double portion, Elijah goes up, and Elisha sees him, his, 
the mantle falls down, Elisha puts it on, and he's like, all right, let's go. He just, he was the servant. He just became God's mouthpiece to the people, and he goes on his way, and people start following him. It's like the next couple verses. People are like, we're going to follow you now since you're the man of God. You've got Elijah's coat. And he goes, okay. And then Elisha gets to the end of his life, and he had done 27 miracles. So if you're a math wizard, 14 plus 14 is 28. That's right. So not quite a double portion. And maybe some of you guys have heard this story before. But what's really interesting is in 2 Kings chapter 13, it says this. Elisha died, right? And they buried him. And then the Moabites who would invade the land in the spring as a man was being buried. This is a different guy. Elisha's already been married. They're burying this other guy. And then this guy, they come up. They try to rob him. A marauding band was seen. And then they just threw the guy that they were trying to bury in this guy's grave. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I don't know about you, but that sounds like another miracle, right? Bringing people to life, right? You know, if somebody's dead and then they're not, like, that's kind of a big deal. So, like, Elisha's buried in the grave, and they're like, oof, this guy's going to attack us. They're like, let's get out of here. They get a little spooked. They throw a guy. He comes back to life. And there's two things I recognize from the story. One, I don't think God misses any details. That's an obvious one. You know, if God is promising you a double portion, he's going to get there. He's not going to miss by one. That doesn't sound like God, right? God's going to hit the mark, right? Sin means to miss the mark. God doesn't sin. He does not miss the mark. He gave him the 28 miracles. But also, when you pour into the next generation, like Elijah did Elisha, legacy continues even after, right? Like the Bible says, this is for you and your children's children. So Elisha's miracles continued to be performed after he was gone. God continues to bless through legacy. Pastor Jeremy said it a couple weeks ago. He said, legacy is for when you're not here anymore. You define your legacy while you're here, but if it continues after you're gone, that's your legacy. And God wants to do that through you and to the next generation and to your children's children and the people you have impact over. That's what God wants and for us to leave a legacy, we have to recognize that. And we have to choose right now, where are we and where are we going? We have to think, where are we and where are we going? Legacy goes beyond our lifetime. In closing, we're going to look at one last story um, about recognizing where you are. Many of you guys have read this story. We're going to be looking at John chapter 21. Um, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. Yes, Simon, Simon Peter, you've heard of him, right? And he was famous for, what's the first story that comes to your mind? Probably him denying Jesus three times, right? He did a lot of stuff. He became the leader of the church in Acts 2. But between him being called and between him actually, you know, being a leader of the church, he denied knowing Jesus' existence three times. So there's this story that really talks about what it means to know God. And it's in John chapter 21. And Jesus has died. He's resurrected. The first thing you notice when they had finished breakfast, note, it's always a good time to eat breakfast, okay? That's right. Um, but they had finished breakfast, and Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's talking about how Jesus was the shepherd, and he's, he's, he's basically giving the mantle to Peter. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then he looked at Peter a second time who denied him three times. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep, tend to this flock. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. You'll notice that sometimes through healing, it hurts. He was grieved because Jesus asked him three times. But why was it necessary? Because he had denied him three times. And Jesus was wanting to heal that inside him. And Peter was grieved. And he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus is willing to heal our past, our mistakes, are hurt. But one thing I notice through this healing, through this hurt, through this spiritual formation is if you want to be like Jesus, you will be led. I think sometimes we forget that. Peter was led by Christ and then through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. I think sometimes we're like, Jesus saved me and then he's kind of left me to figure it out. He's given me this Bible for me to read through so that I can figure it out on my own. But Jesus does want to be with us 24-7. He did give us the Holy Spirit for that reason. He wants to engage with you. And if you want to be like Jesus, you will be led. We live in a self-help type of world, right? If you read enough books, if you read enough books, you will be successful at your job. Or if you figure out this, you'll be the best parent in the world. Or if you read all the books on theology, right, then you will truly know God. But that puts it on you, right? God wants to teach you and walk with you every single day. And if you want to be like Jesus, you will be led. I think the greatest lie of this American self-help age that we live in is that you're in control. That if you work hard enough, you'll figure it out. And I I think if we really take a step back and examine our lives, I don't think we're over control in our lives as much as we think we are. That's, one, that's part of identifying where you are. I don't think I'm in control over my life as much as I think I am. But I, I do know who's in control. And the other one is, you'll be led where you do not want to go. He says this later in a couple extra verses. He says, Peter, you're going to get led where you do not want to go, even to death on a cross. If you've read church history at all, you know that Peter also was crucified. And when they went to crucify him, he said, I want you to crucify me up, upside down. Because I'm not going to be, I don't deserve to die the same death as my Lord. Do you think Peter chose that for himself? I think a lot of times we're willing to follow God as far as our comfort level is. God, I'm willing to do this because I'm comfortable with that. I'm willing to do this if, like, it doesn't make me feel anxious or depressed or hard. And that's something we see in the story of Elisha. That's something we see throughout the New Testament following Jesus puts us in moments that are uncomfortable. But just as we kind of talked about in the pastoral moment, if you live in a tension, that tension is there to strengthen you and to make you more like Christ. God said he won't break you. He's not going to bend you to where you're going to be destroyed. His whole mindset is to strengthen you to look more like God. So as I leave you with these two questions, or I leave you with these two thoughts and then this question, if you want to be like Jesus, you will be led, and you're going to be led where you do want to go. Control's often a fool's errand, right? We can't really do it. We don't really have as much control. So my question I'm leaving you with this morning is, you know, we do this in youth. They have little sheets of paper I hand them when I speak, and they fill in blanks. And and then uh, I leave them with some thoughts before we go into small groups. But how willing am I to go where I would rather not? How willing am I to go where I would rather not? Henry Nouwen said this. He said, maturity for Jesus is willing to be led where you would rather not go. 
It's, an, it's identifying that maybe, just maybe, the creator of the universe has an idea for you that you didn't come up with yourself. That maybe you shouldn't be rationalizing yourself out of this faith that he's called us to. So the question I leave with you today is how willing am I to go where I would rather not go? That's our focus this morning. Because God's willing to take you deeper than you'll ever realize. And sometimes we sing songs about that, and, but do we want it? God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this day that we can gather together. We do not take it for granted. We thank you for the two baptisms that happened in first service. We thank you for this week of Thanksgiving that we're about to enjoy and seeing families and friends amidst that tension and chaos. God, I thank you for what you're doing in people's lives today, in my life. Lord, how hard is it to go where we don't want to? How hard is it to admit that maybe we don't have it all figured out? God, I thank you for what you're going to do. I pray that we would just continue to ponder and think on what you're wanting to do in our lives that maybe we're not willing to do, but also to recognize that you want to be with us 24-7, that you want to spend life with us, that you want to do life with us together. God, we thank you. We glorify you for that. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.